Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire episode 78, John 12 in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, or at LizaNarborGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me from the internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wanted to switch things up today. <laughs> Which internet is that? Oh, the internet. Uh, you guys. The tubes. The penultimate episode in our Jonisodes. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I guess it's as good a time as any to tell you guys what we're going to be doing next week. Get you a little excited before we dive into this episode. I was going to say the next POV and I was like, tease. No, I would never tell them the new POV in the penultimate episode. I'm not going to give away the whole game of thrones but i am gonna give away a special guest that we're gonna have on next week i'm really excited eliana i think you're pretty excited as well i am very excited (laughs) next week we're going to have shelly the lady shelly from twitter from the page of many faces on to guest with us she is the biggest john fan that i personally know she also got me into uh, everything A Song of Ice and Fire online, pretty much. So she is going to join us. But most importantly, next week's episode is going to focus on the Patriots, because Shelly is, in fact, the biggest Patriots, the number one Pats fan, if you will. Yes, so we're doing an episode only about Jon Snow and how he relates to the Patriots, the world's best sport Team, I, I, which one I is thought that? You were That's football, know what right? Sport they were because I was like, I don't know what sport this is. <laughs> Turns out both of us suck. She likes the one dude, um, Gronk. Is that like? Is he a giant? Isn't that from that first new groove? Yeah, I thought that too. But then I was like, is he a giant? Would that would fit right into this episode? If he was a giant, I guess he's not a giant. He's not a giant. Well, we're going to have to study up on some football before next Sunday, is what we're trying to say when we yeah. record with her. Uh, Sunday night football. Yeah, Sunday That's night football thing. with the Lady Shelley. So it is football. Yeah, it's football. Okay. I think. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> quote us on many th- other things. We are, uh, in my opinion, mildly quotable. But not on this. Yeah, anyway. not on sports, guys. Girls don't go sports in, but we do like fishing. We do like fishing. Yeah, girls gone fishing. Yeah. Look at us. Always looking for that angle. Stop. Anyways. We will be announcing our new POV because I don't know if you guys know this is a reread podcast. We have reread these books. Hopefully you have too. But John dies next week. That is true. It's not even just like normal, like, oh, POV over. John's dead. Yeah, forever. Um, as like I, I so artfully said on Twitter today, on our Twitter account, I said, repent, sinners, because he's dying for your sins. John is dying for our sins, just as our other savior, Ned, oh my God. also died for our sins. But In he just kept sinning, father. and that's why John had to die. <laughs> yeah. We never learned our fucking lesson. <laughs> so... We got a we got some emails and tweets of note. Yeah, we got them. We have a, an email from our friend Pete that says, "Hi GGC, just wondering about your thoughts about Lord Commander Jon Snow renegotiating the timbers that were taken from the New Gifts Eastern Coast. 
with a down payment of wilding treasures. Mayhaps, lashed together and floated across the narrow sea to be transformed into lumber, maybe, using the free folk as transportation there as a sort of trained labor force, to a wood-starved bravos. A place where even the scraps of any kind of wood demand a high price, using Sam's Bravos chapters as a price guide. Or, they use that lumber in the manufacturing of ships as more than a few power players wish to build or replace their navies. Lord, not Lord, like, like a Janet, like Janet, is viewing a virtual gold mine as far as his eyes can see as he travels about this wooded north. So those are my thoughts on John's negotiated settlement of northern timber secured by the Northmen, and by that, he says in parentheses, Northmen and Free Folk in the spring to get food now for this coming winter. Thanks for reading and for what you do. Pete! Those are some really great thoughts. There's such a huge opportunity for resources in the North, and it's definitely kind of one that no one has been apt enough to make worthwhile in the North or had time to, right? Ned had other things on his mind. He did think about it, but he just kind of got stalled. Uh, he had to go south and, you know, melted. Adam Whitehead at Wart Zone or at Atlas of Ice and Fire has written a lot about the resources in the North. So has Stephen Adewell. He's dabbled in it as well. I definitely recommend checking out their blogs for more of that. But I'm going to be honest, I don't think Tycho Nestoris is going to see that money ever. I don't know how you feel, Eliana, but I feel like somehow... That money is never going to Bravos ever. Uh, and that debt, well, I don't know if it'll just be forgiven or what, but I just have a feeling it's not going to happen. I always get distracted when I think about Tycho Nisaurus. I'm like, yes, Tycho Nisaurus. I'm like, oh, yes, Sherlock. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we're just completely off the Song of Ice and Fire train. It's not like a deep thought. I'm just like, oh, lol, Sherlock. That's it. That's the end of the the script. Yeah, I mean, something we've explored too, though, is that... Obviously, Tycho is looking at the odds of this, and he wants somebody to win, uh, somebody that's not shitty. And the North, uh, if they somehow get out of this deal with Tycho Nestoris, which I'm not sure how, but I feel like it's going to be like John's Night's Watch vows, right? Like, he's just not going to have to fulfill them. Uh, the North finds itself so laden with lumber and game and fishing and stone and silver, and the White Knife is often deforested harshly and sold they do have a strong timber route but they could really do with some new logistics like uh or at least increasing white harbor increasing some of the manpower there and i imagine that's kind of going to be that big end game for the north increase of lumber to restore fleets specifically probably the royal fleets in the south and the other kingdom increased weaponry and forging and the glass gardens are probably going to be constructed to become more profitable I imagine there's going to be a ton of infrastructure to be built in the north in the long run. Uh, they just no longer really have this infrastructure now. No one's really paying attention to it anymore. I mean, they did burn down Winterfell. Yeah, they're not. They're not there at like the innovating of infrastructure yet. They're in the like survival, build, survive. Yes, but you know, it's a good thing they have the Boltons. Boltons. I rebuilding winterfell i have questions <laughs> uh question one how much do we care about trolling <laughs> our listeners question two will you read this itunes review eliana i shall so you guys we got an itunes review with the subject line fun way to reread aswaf 
I found this podcast recently, and it's a neat way to reread through Asoff, going POV by POV, rather than strict chapter order. The hosts are funny and engaging. Debatable. Apparently someone <laughs> gave a four-star review because of the Jon Snow voice, and I am giving five stars as a countermeasure because the Jon Snow voice is great. <laughs> uh, Thank we're you. really milking that Jon Snow voice who, thing. Who said this? We should give them... I don't know. I, I also like realize now that we read it with no person named on there, I'm like, this wasn't me, by the this way. This comes from Rob in... Dot A, but, but let me explain to you how this is written, because it's R0B underscore I-N dot A. So Robin Aaron said this. Sweet Robin, I knew you'd survive. <laughs> sweet Robin, probably because we keep saying that he's going to survive, and that's why he gave us this. Dude, Sweet Robin is um, going to survive at this point. Like, I, I will fight anyone that says otherwise. So. so thank you, Sweet Robin, for the, the iTunes review. Yeah. And I will say, in the, to the credit of the four-star review, you know, they gave us pretty positive review in four stars is good so thank you i it's a solid b as i was yeah. telling chloe and that's that's passing that's more than passing yeah she had to take like an hour to explain to me why i don't know if i even deserve the b but i understand now and i'll accept my b no i'm not saying you don't deserve it i'm just like they must it's fine right yeah i think like they they still like us we still like you we do but we also like Robin Aaron. <laughs> I also like Songstress on Twitter. At uh, Songstress7AZ. They've been listening to us and catching up. They've gotten through the slog of a bajillion episodes of 78 A Song of Ice and Fire episodes. And they said, mm-hmm. catching up on past episodes. Caught you musing about seasoned rangers. What seasoning? Seasoned with time, obviously. <laughs> Winky face emoji and also, honestly, brilliant, brilliant. This deserves awards. Give Songstress the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, are you a Sagittarius? Yeah, Songstress, Songstress are you a Sagittarius? Third out of the dragon. <laughs> this is we're still searching, um, as you can all tell. Apparently, Sagittarii are not as uh, common as you'd think. I guess I don't even yeah. think that's a proper conjugation. Um, I made that up. Sagittarii, I. You know what? You were honestly so confident that I couldn't even, couldn't even <laughs> debate. I undercut myself. You were saying something about songstress catching up on the episodes, and I just want to remind everyone, you know, thank you for rejoining us in this new year. We took a break, and really, we just did it for all of you so that you could catch up on episodes, not for us at all. Yeah. For real. Absolutely. We had a lot to catch up on. <laughs> Well, speaking of stuff to catch up on, there's a lot that we missed between John 11 in A Dance with Dragons and John 12 in A Dance with Dragons. So let's jump into our lightning round. Cersei 1. A Cersei chapter, first of all. Alone and vulnerable as a prisoner of the faith, Cersei confesses of sleeping with the Kettleblack brothers and Lancel and Moonboy, for all I know, rewarded by the promise of a trial. Her lord uncle comes with dark wings, dark words. What he doesn't know is he's going to get dark wings, dark words soon. <laughs> he's going to die. Got him. <laughs> Got him. Yes. The Queen's Guard. Daenerys' absence has grown stronger in Marine as Barristan tries to keep it all together. Barristan finds himself stuck between striking a deal with the shave pate and keeping the Queen's city safe. The Iron Suitor. 
A red priest heals Victorian's firearm. <laughs> Victorian makes for Marine. Yeah, Victorian is the kind of guy to unironically say, like, I was allowed in. Because yeah. I was carrying these guns. He straight up would, like, pull something out of his pocket. I brought my license. License for what, Victorian? My guns. Yeah. <sighs> it's just one. Totally that person. Tyrion, 11. The bloody flux presents an opportunity for Tyrion, Jorah, and Penny to escape. They head toward the Second Sons, where Tyrion plays more than just a game of Sivas. And that brings us to John 12. John, quote-unquote, betrays the realm, allowing sanctuary to the free folk from the incoming storm of others. He receives more dark wings, dark words. From Cotter Pike. Whenever I get DMs now on like Twitter or messages on email, I'm just going to be like, dark wings, dark words. <laughs> like, that's what you're going to respond to them? Yeah, immediately. Yeah. You should set up <laughs> an automated message, like on like mm. Outlook or whatever. Or I guess you guys use Gmail. John 12. Dreams of free folk and warhorns haunt John, full of gigantic dogs and chariots, and of course, giants. Feed them flame! John howls out, alone on the wall. He is alone with only Scarecrow brothers with cloaks aflame. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a gray beard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognized Egret. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. The world dissolved into a red mist. John stabbed and slashed and cut. He hacked down Donald Noy and gutted deaf Dick Follard. Corrin Halfhand stumbled to his knees, trying in vain to staunch the flow of blood from his neck. I am the Lord of Winterfell, John screamed. It was Rob before him now, his hair wet with melting snow. Longclaw took his head off, then a gnarled hand seized John roughly by the shoulder. He whirled and woke with a raven pecking at his chest. Hoof! What a way to it's open a chapter! Damn! Uh. Wow, there's like a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack here, and... There's some obvious, some not obvious. John dreams this after having read about Azor High and Lightbringer in Maester Aemon's books he left. John wakes up being poked by Mormont's raven, that's certainly being used by Bloodraven and Bran at this point, hence the gnarled hand seizing John by the shoulder in his dream and it turning to a raven. I thought that's very cleverly done, George. Um, it also reminds me and I'm sure a lot of people of Danny Three in A Storm of Swords, when she dreams during some of her turmoil with the slavers, that night she dreamt she was Rhaegar, riding to the Trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the fire, they were all armored in ice, but she bathed them in dragon fire and they melted away like dew and turned the Trident into a torrent. I thought the Feed Them Flame line was really uh, interesting in these dreams because John is screaming to feed them to flame and Daenerys is atop Drogon. She's atop her dragon bathing mm. people in dragon fire. And from the Winds of Winter Aaron chapter, we do know Euron has Valyrian steel armor. So that armored in black ice could have a literal meaning, but I don't think 
that's where that passage is supposed to be taking literally i think the it leans more towards the daenerys dream yeah and you know as you point out how similar to the daenerys dream you know we've been talking about similar themes in danny and john storylines especially in dance it's it's kind of notable that they seem to both be alone right yeah in these like all their friends and everyone has kind of left them and that's something that they struggle with as they make these decisions and become leaders and i think emotionally there's an aspect of it that kind of reminds me of one of Tyrion's own nightmares where he's like killing jamie and it's kind of described he sounds like he's mainly the monstrous because he has like a second head and that one's like crying as his brother dies um but something that kind of unnerves me about this dream is john dreams of like killing some of these people right who are climbing atop the wall and some of them like are just way too nondescript to figure out who they are like a beardless boy literally could be fucking anyone anyway (laughs) but he dreams of a gaunt man with filed teeth and there is in fact someone in the story that we know is described like that it's biter Mm. with his filed teeth but john has never met biter so i don't know what's going on here it's interesting because he sees Biter just right before seeing the girl with red hair who's Egret. And, you know, finally, like a lot of this chapter opening and the rest of this chapter, of course, reminds me of Ned's last chapters, multiple of them. And like that this starts off with a nightmare, you know, feels to me kind of like a mirror of Ned's fever dream, especially, you know, with like the way that the unsettled bird soon like keep saying weird shit that's a really great point uh we'll talk about more of some of the ned parallels later on we get a little bit of ned nine in here too not just that fever dream mm-hmm. john is swatting the bird away and he looks out amidst the gloom it's the hour of the wolf before sunrise you know as someone who is fascinated by all of the different hours in this story i find this really interesting because like you kind of think that the Hour of the Wolf would be, like, the middle of the night, right? Like, when the moon yeah. is biggest and werewolves and shit. Even though we don't have werewolves, whatever. Anyways. Yeah, when the moon hits your eye. Like a big pizza pie, that's a werewolf. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's interesting that we've learned that the Hour of the Wolf is a bit before sunrise. So that puts it at, like, maybe, I don't know, 4 or 5 a.m. Depending. Mm-hmm. 5 or 6, depending. Anyways, it also... I realize now then gives great context as to why Cregan Stark's short time as the hand is called the Hour of the Wolf. It's not just like funny because, oh, he's a Stark and they're wolves. But like it also speaks to that taking place right before that like more lasting or truer comfortable peace and the aftermath of the dance that like that's when the day comes out and they're no longer in the darkness of fighting. And one day we're going to finish up uh, talking about Fire and Blood, and we'll talk about this more in a Patreon episode with the reign of Aegon III one day. Yeah, absolutely. We did finish up our Hour of the Wolf episode. That was our, uh, oh god, what oh, was the it? The, the Our hour, that was our hour and a half of the wolf. It was our part four of our Dance of the Dragons episodes, and I would love, Eliana, I would love, I believe it was part four. Yeah, we did four parts on Patreon, For our $5 and up patrons, we do special episodes where you can get a very specific special topic, not just the usual reread. And we have done four Dance of the Dragon episodes. The fourth episode was The Hour of the Wolf. However, are you trying to ask me on a date? Do you really want to talk about Aegon III? We could do that sometime. Well, for this month's date is the Maiden Vault. Yes, 
but future for the future. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to Eventually. go on a Egan the Third date with you. I think we intended to do that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> so John is about to let 4,000 free folk through the wall. He's casually kind of losing his shit over what a big choice this is. He's like standing at the wall. He's like, hmm, this is fine. This is fine. He thinks about how it should have been Mormont or his uncle instead, but that it's he who has to do it. He thinks... Every choice had its risks, every choice its consequences. He would play the game to its conclusion. Okay, total quote, like, endgame style quote. I thought that was nuts. We're in the endgame now. We're in the endgame of thrones now. That's what he should have said. Uh, Uh He thinks of a few of these more experienced people on the wall, but if the endgame of thrones is what we've uh, seen bold strokes of on the television set... It kind of makes me think of this line in different contexts. Like, right now, yes, right now, this line is completely fitting. Like, I wish it had been J.R. Mormont. I wish it would have been my Uncle Benjamin making this big choice to let the free folk through the wall. But what about later choices, right? Mm. Like, will he be thinking, I wish it was Jorah Mormont making this big choice? I wish it was my Uncle Ned making this choice when he learns about his parentage, when he's following Daenerys. Uh, what? Very interesting to think of this phrase coming back to haunt him. That's an interesting question. There's a lot of interesting questions raised by this chapter. I thought it was interesting because he didn't say their first names. That was what it... Yeah. That's kind of what triggered me to think this was just, like, interesting that he says, what about... Or why is it not Mormont? Why is it not my uncle? Hmm. Yeah. Which and which... Yeah, for for later on, I think that's a really great connection. I'm not gonna lie, when you're talking about John thinking it's fine, I thought of like in the dream with the fires. Is John the little dog? Yep. John comic? is sitting like, there amidst all fine. the fire, and he's just yep. It says feed them flame on his coffee mug. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should make that. <laughs> um, another thing that I thought of in the scene is like you know as we're nearing the end of John's life, it kind of reminds me. You know, where he's like thinking, it should have been my uncle. Reminds me of a couple of things towards the beginning of the books and the beginning of John's storyline. Uh, going back to Ned's chapters, way, way, way back then when we were talking about those, uh, we had discussed how Ned and the gods would, praying as his daughters fall asleep, was kind of reminiscent of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when all of his like disciples are like, we're going to take a fucking nap, go pray. And he's like praying for his life. He's like, God, take this cup away from me. And like, I mean, I don't think it's that like super overt in this moment, but you know, John, John's going to be resurrected like Jesus. It's, it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole thing. But also coming back to the beginning of John's story, right? Like, him thinking it should have been my uncle reminds me of that line from Catelyn. Mm-hmm. I think it's John's first chapter, right? It should have been you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a lot of bargaining going on in John's storyline as he goes through a gazillion stages of grief, making these hard choices. Like Catelyn was obviously doing some bargaining too. She didn't react very well to it. And like John thinking it should have been X other person is kind of his own desire to pass that cup onto someone else the way that Catelyn kind of wanted it to be John instead of Bran. Um, he wants this horrible thing that's happening right now of making this hard choice to be on someone else. And like that shows us that what John feels that he is doing and making this decision, he's like, this is horrible. He's like not super jazzed, even though everyone else seems to think that, oh, John loves it and his power. And 
coming back to another POV, right? John thinks that once the gate was open, there'd be no turning back. And I think that's he, re- he recognizes that, yeah, you can't fucking undo this decision. This is his own crossing of the Rubicon to tie it once more to Theon's story. Like, for Theon, as a reminder, like, he was literally crossing a river. And that like signals to the reader that he was going to reach his point of no return when he was searching for those missing Stark boys. And for him, it was killing the Miller's boys and passing them off as Bran and Rickon. Like, he can't come back from telling everyone, yo, I killed the Stark kids, even though he didn't. And from killing those innocents, like, he pays that price narratively. Um, fans continue to debate whether or not it was too high a price. And John, same thing. Like, this is a horrible decision that or position where he has to make that decision. And John's not going to be able to undo letting thousands of wildlings through the wall. And he ends up paying a price for that choice as well. Yeah. And not to get controversial, but I mean, I think that he, a, he knows he would make that choice over and over again, even if it meant dying. Um, yeah. B, I think that, it's important he made that choice no matter what because he saved thousands of people's lives. And C, I mean, it all loops right back to Ned, right? Like what you said with the cup passing, it's just like that line from Catelyn 2 in A Game of Thrones, right? Uh, Brandon would know what to do. He always did. It was all meant for Brandon. You, winner, felt everything. He was born to be a king's hand and a father to queens. I never asked for this cup to pass to me. And uh, that's what John's been running from. But finally, there's no one else for this cup to pass to. You know, this is his cup to drink from. And it's the shitty cup. Truly. Yeah. It's not not a great cup. No. And, I mean, that's the thing. Ned Stark died for our sins. Yep. John has to now, too. (laughs) For our sins. Our sins and his sins. Yes. Which... It was, like, a really good thing that he did, actually. Um, John gets dressed, and more monster even squawks at him, saying, Corn King! And Snow! John Snow! John Snow! <laughs> John is, like, really taken back by all this. It's pretty upsetting, you know what I mean? Because, I'll be upset. Yeah, a freaking bird is just squawking at you. Uh, he goes to eat with his officers in the cellars so that he can forget all about it. Fried bread, fried eggs, blood sausages, barley porridge, and thin yellow beer to wash it down. Because in case you're wondering, yes, we're running low on stores, but we're still a food podcast, guys. <laughs> and they are eating, quote, good, unquote. Yeah, it's still not super bad yet. Though it does sound to me like they're drinking Natty Ice. And Hey, sometimes that's all you have. I recently saw a Little Woman and drank oh Miller Lite inside of Little Woman. Miller Lite's, like, better than Natty Ice. Yeah, it tastes more like water. Yeah, but anyway. It's not champagne, it's not the high life, but anyway. Yeah, it's true. They go over the plans about the Free Folk again, and Bowen Marsh says, you know, if the Free Folk hold their end of the bargain, there there aren't going to be any issues. John reminds him that they need to work together as a team! Because some of these people hate them, too. They're cold, hungry, and afraid. And I'm like, yes, John, true. I can see why you think that this is a thing to remind people that, yes, you all feel the same way. But have you considered, you know, hear me out for a second, John, maybe reminding them that the free folk also hate the Night's Watch Yeah, isn't a good idea. Like, really great that you're trying to tell them the similarities between them, but maybe that's one similarity we don't. Yeah. You're all the same. You breathe air, 
You all drink water. You want to rip each other's guts out. You all the smell same. like asshole. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> the same. He then goes on to make matters worse and tells them if anything happens out there today, it better not be from his guys or he'll have that man's head. And they're like, okay, word. Kind of harsh, right? Kind of harsh. Um, it- it's something I never noticed. How he does his, like, think one thing, say another really mm-hmm. shows in his actions now. And he kind of yeah. thinks he's being a fair boss. But in this instance, he's being a little cruel, ensuring none of them cross his orders. Like, he's going very far to ensure none of them cross these orders, even though none of them really want to cross his orders. Uh, interesting compared yeah. to, like, where Daenerys sits ruling right now in Marine and the power that she actually has over her people and her dragons, mm-hmm. even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John's PR game, not mm-hmm. strong. Not no. strong in this moment. Someone get his people in the HR department, but... Yeah, yeah, not good. Dolores Ed leaves the table last, having come in the middle of the night from Long Barrow, and he was supposed to gather up as many of the spearwives as he could to bring them to join their sisters, and Chloe puts this in the note, Ed dunks bread in his yoke. <laughs> Ed dunks bread in his yoke, and John feels comforted to see his brother. It's his only friend he has left, and I thought it was an important note. It is important. He also has his dog. Don't forget that. That's true. But, you know. Dogs are friends. Ed gives John the update. Ten years until the full restoration is done, and he's one with the mules now. (laughs) This is literally what he tells him. He's like, me, I am one with the mules. Nettles claims that we're kin. Yeah, hear me out here. Again. Dolores Ed. Skin changer. Of mules. He asks John not to let the free folk eat all the chickens. And John watches the sky lighten. It's going to be a bright, warm winter day. Ed says the wall will weep and that winter is upon them. John is like, what weather do you like, Ed? And Ed's like, indoors. What a mood. Yep. (laughs) He asks to get back to his mules who love him, unlike the spearwives, and they finally part ways. John heads to the stables where Satin had bridled his horse, and he is riding a fiery gray courser with a black mane that's as shiny as a maester's ink. Yes, John needs to look impressive for his trip beyond the wall. So as he's leaving off, he has a tail of men guarding him to his dismay. But thank fucking God, John finally decided, what if I had guards? Yeah, I'm really glad, John, that you thought of this the last Second to last chapter that you have in the whole yeah. book. Finally. Yeah. I'm so glad you finally have a guard, John. I'm glad yeah. that you got it in the end of the book. It won't mean anything. Yeah, because he brings it to the wrong group of people. <laughs> They're yeah. all dressed in black and adorned. You know, now that I think about it, they've been telegraphing to him the whole time. Get yourself some guards because of us. Anyway, they are all dressed in black and adorned with different armors and medals. And John specifically chose eight men in their prime. Whatever that means. Uh, this reminds me of Sweet Robin's Tourney, though. Eight men in their yeah. prime. Uh, for those of you that have not read the Winds of Winter sample chapters yet, uh, if you're a Patreon member, patrons $5 and up have access to our Elaine in the Winds of Winter sample chapter analysis. Uh, but it, there's a tourney happening in the Vale, and the top eight out of 64 that are competing in the Vale in this tourney will become part of the Brotherhood of the Winged Knights who will protect their lord. So I just thought that was interesting. Eight people for this honor guard and eight winged knights. That 
is interesting. Isn't that just eight? Eight and eight. I knew there was a connection somewhere. Mm-hmm. So John chooses a few people. Uh, he chooses Ty and Molly. Ty, a steward, found Alice Karfstark on the King's Road. He was shot at by Krieg and Stark's companions on the road. Molly is who helped Ed escort Val off to Tormund. He's named, actually, for one of George and Paris's cats they had in the past, named Mulligan, who was orange. And Molly in the books has a big orange beard and greasy orange hair. So there's a little trivia for you. Hmm. Left Hand Lou. Lou was part of the great ranging that went to look for Benjen. He made it back from Craster's Keep, loyal and alive. He also has a role for us next chapter as well, so pay attention to that. Big Little, of course, we know who he is. Rory, he's the one who went to John in the Weirwood Grove earlier in this book. Folk the Flea is just a guy. <laughs> Whatever. Folk. Garrett Greenspear is uh, just a dude, right? Whatever, just Garrett. a dude. He has his men in other areas. Uh, Marsh is guiding the stewards. There aren't any queensmen in this group, though. And there aren't any boomers. Leathers is the last person. He's there to inspire the free folk since he once fought for Mance. So a lot of these seasoned men are great. Uh, Little is in there to be honored, right? As a northern man, he's being honored by the Night's Watch. This is a big deal, having him be in that safety guard. But John is once more catering to what he thinks will appease the free folk, whether he realizes it or not. Um, Rory is a good choice as a seasoned guy from the beginning of the story, but uh, and so's Lou, but a lot of these people are just dudes in their prime, and none of the boomer group are here. Yeah, that's true. Like, he should have brought Awful Yarvik or something, right? And been like, yes, these are the other le- my other leaders. I trust them. I shouldn't. Yeah, he should have brought at least one of these uh, older gentlemen that have an issue with him just to kind of, I don't know, if he wants to play fair, he should try to make sure that he's playing fair on that side too. And I think he's not counting a lot of these dudes to have feelings about it. He's just like, yeah, well, they're going to eat this stew and they're going to like it. And I think, I wonder if it's because, A, he doesn't get it that he needs to play that game, and B, he's used to a different kind of Night's Watchman, right? Like, he mm-hmm. was studying with Donald Noy and Corrin Halfhand, men who were, like, willing to do the pragmatic thing. It might not have been the best thing for them personally, because literally they died, but they were doing what they could for the watch. Ooh, yeah. For the watch. Okay, anyway. <laughs> So, John softly commands for the gate to be opened. Something that stood out to me was this, like, one line. It's, the stars are going out, John thought. And I don't think it's necessarily very meaningful. I love this line in the imagery, but, and, and how John thinks that it'll be a new day afterwards. But it kind of makes me feel like it might be a nod to another sci-fi short story called The Nine Billion Names of God by Arthur C. Clarke. And it does also help set the tone for John's story. So, like, there's this visual effect in storytelling and, like, imagery, etc. that typically heralds. It, it goes by the same name in TV tropes, the end of the world as we know it. And, like, it stuck out to me because it reminds me of that last line in the Nine Billion Names of God, which is, the stars were going out. And coincidentally, like, my first exposure to George R. R. Martin, I didn't realize it back then, was in the, in the same anthology that I read this short in. It was Sand Kings. It took me a long time and talking to Cantus to connect. I was like, wait, that short story was George? (laughs) 
I'm not going to tell you, like, the rest of the short because I think it's, like, I don't know, open license or whatever the term is for it. So you can just go read it online. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a quick nod, sort of homage to that, especially because I'm sure that George has read his share of Clark. And it does help set the tone, in my opinion, to, like, the end of John's life and the current order, right? Like, it, it, it helps transition us into feeling like... The story's going to go a little more apocalyptic as we get closer to fighting the others in the second long night. Especially because he's like, ah, yes. The stars are going out. Darkness. So, anyway. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a great catch. I didn't even think about that. And, I mean, the stars going out is kind of like one of those very subliminal apocalypse now kind of feelings, right? Yeah. Um, And all these signs are really ramping up, all of the very blatant cannibalism and, you know, yada, yada. It's a end times Ania. We just need like some dudes in the street preaching, which we have kind of in King's Landing. We we do have some of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's time, baby. Bring on the, uh, the rain, the fiery rain. The locusts. Yeah. Feed, feed them flames. The honeyed flamed locusts. Oh. <laughs> they are spicy. A flash of red appears in the window at King's Tower, but no Queen Selyse. Big Little roars his command, and up it goes. The sound rang out, echoing off the wall and out across the world. Ow! <laughs> One long blast. For a thousand years or more, that sound had meant rangers coming home. Today it meant something else. Today it called the free folk to their new homes. Isn't that such a special line? For a thousand years or more, that sound had meant rangers coming home. Today it does too. Today it means rangers coming home too. Aw, yes, you're right. You're right. But not all of them swear because that would be weird and fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Worse than it already is. If you will. (laughs) Satin led them through the tunnel with an iron lantern, and John and his guard came second. Following them is Bowen and the stewards. Above that, Ulmer has the wall with two score bowmen. North of the wall, Tormund waits with his two sons on a horse that, judging by its condition, could not outrun the crows. Tormund jokes that John must distrust him as he brought a large guard, but John motions towards the 4,000 free folk awaiting them. Torment is like, well, I want my folk to see you. They've never seen a Lord Commander before. I want them to know that, you know, there's nothing to fear about you. And John's like in his head, that's not, that's not what I want them to learn about me. I would like them to still fear me. I want to have yeah. a little bit of rulership here. Yeah. <sighs> oh, I get, I get what Torment's saying though, because he's. I, I do think that a lot of the conflict, right, that we're seeing between a lot of people is like misplaced fear. Yeah. In the other. Not just the others. I meant like the, you know, the yeah. other. But. Yeah. No, for sure. John whistles, bringing ghosts to him, as he will not be cowed. He has to be scary with his big wolf doggo. Torment is like, you're a black-hearted bastard. And he blows his war horn to commence the free folk's entrance, which lasts from dawn to dusk. First, it's the 100 boy hostages. I hope the wailing of the poor mothers don't haunt your dreams at night, Torment says. <laughs> this language is very reminiscent of what Ned went through with Liana to me, and with mm. characters like Bara in the brothel in Ned 9 and her mother 
the wailing of the poor mothers haunting his dreams. Promise me, promise me. And news alert, spoiler alert, they already do haunt John, right? Uh, it even reminds me, the comparison between these two lines from John 2 in A Dance of Dragons and Eddard 9 in A Game of Thrones. If not for the way the candle made them glisten, John might never have known that she was weeping. And of course, in Eddard 9, he thought of the promises he'd made Lyanna as she lay dying and the price he'd paid to keep them. Um, maybe it's something we haven't even seen on page, right, that it reminds us of. Like, Ashara Dane. We don't know what happened there. Kind of. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we kind of know what happened there. Anyways, I digress. Uh, George told me himself, it's fine, guys. It's not a big deal. But it, it just, it really brings that strong uh, oh, sense of just, like, guilt and John hasn't quite gone as far as Ned with the guilt that's stacking up, right? He hasn't lived through an entire rebellion yet or an entire uh, crusade against a king, but he will. Yeah, absolutely. Two stewards count the people, a third collects the toll, and all do the bookkeeping. None of the hostages cry or make a fuss. There are no wailing mothers, and John thinks that these are winter's people. Uh, because tears would freeze on their cheeks or something like that. Winter's people are thin and ragged. But they still came in every size and color imaginable. This is saying every they come in every size and color. That's literally from the books. Um, blonde, redheads, brunette, scarred, pockmarked, mustached, bearded. Some wore fine fur, some sealskins, few in rags. One was even naked. The armed ones carried spiked clubs. Knives of bone or stone or dragon glass, spears, mauls here and there, even a rusty sword. I want to point out that of the hundred boys that are taken hostage, John points out like only one of them has like an actual like real full beard. Remember, they're the, between the ages of eight and sixteen, and some of them have like wisps of mustaches. And I'm like, of course you do, of course you do, boy. That's so sad, though. It's so real, though. So this whole real. chapter is like really sad and. I've read these books too many times, and just now, maybe it's because I'm taking time to smell the blue roses or something, but, like, sadder than it was. It's all really sad, dude. Yeah. Like, especially the descriptions of these people. It just breaks my heart, and I just want to help. <laughs> and it's, they aren't real. Uh, but there are real people that need our help. Anyways. Tormund is pointing out some of the higher-born free folk to John still to watch out for. And something that we mentioned in passing last week was that Jeff over at Nauticast Podcast, ASYAF, said these chapters timeline-wise came from George needing to do some filler work to get to next week's last chapter. Uh, the manuscript that George sent in March 2011 before the book's publishing was missing John 11, John 12, John 13, Asha 3, Theon 7, and Victarion 2. So it's becoming very obvious the second he and I had that chat that this world building from the Free Folk is making up for that absence. Uh, There's a ton of hit-and-run Free Folk that haven't been mentioned before. Stuff he didn't put in A Clash of Kings or Storm of Swords. The, this first person that Tormund comments on is one of those specific cases, Soren Shieldbreaker and his son. They're very made up. They wield axes. And uh, Garrett Kingsblood's son, who says that comes from Raymond Redbeard's line, again, has not existed before A Dance with Dragons. Yeah. Gardening at work right there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he had to plant some seeds real quick in those final handful of chapters. I thought I would have five years, but really I had five days. <laughs> grow seeds, grow! <laughs> Anne is gonna kill me! <laughs> uh, um, there's a set of cousins, Harl the Huntsman and Harl the Handsome, who were born from the same woman, different fathers, Kind of like a nega left, right, Eric and Eric situation. Will they come to love each other as they die under a crumbling wall in the snow apocalypse, apologizing for letting a woman be in the way of their brothership, do you think? Does Tormund not know the difference between siblings and cousins? Yeah, they're half-brothers. Oh yeah, God, this is very that's not cousins. Term. That's brothers. Those boys are brothers, but the dads yeah. are cousins. Hmm, Tormund doesn't right? know. Maybe George just didn't think about it. I never noticed that. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this I'm adding this to my list. Oh my god, you have a list? So, and yeah, I, I started didn't know making you actually a list. have a list. I started making a list after I realized there were all these questions that I kept forgetting that I really wanted answers to. Right now I have what was the fate of Lucerius the second, Ares the Second's Masterships, what happened to Lady Lyessa Flint's baby? You might get a lot of these answered someday, you never know. I know. We got an answer about sources from our good friend Warren. They are based um, off of actual sources. Yes. They are not zebras. Anyway, because of this Harl the Huntsman and Harl the Handsome's relationship, I was actually reminded, so Harl, the, both the Harls are not brothers, but their children are are brothers if they're sorry on the same woman. And it reminded me of the brothers that founded House Charlie, who also both slept with the same woman. They had to, like, have sex with her or something on a full moon, and they would keep their youth for some reason. God. I don't know if they had threesomes or not. Thruple. Thruple. It's interesting because this does have kind of almost, like, it reminds me, and this is a stretch, but of Ned and Robin John in a way, because it's like implied same dad, but different mothers. Yeah. So it's kind of the opposite I idea, right? Opposite idea. Yeah. Same dad, different mothers, not same mom, different dad. Uh, broad strokes. And they didn't grow to hate each other in most ways, but one was handsome. One was the huntsman. And Tormund actually thinks John should send one of the boys to Eastwatch and the other to Shadow Tower. Which is interesting to me, like, it just reminds me of Robin, John, and how that didn't actually happen, even though Catelyn wanted it to. Yeah. Also, is this the parent trap, though? Oh, interesting. And then they try to get all three of their parents back together? Yeah, Thrupple. <laughs> Thrupple. There were the sons of Howd Wanderer also, and Brog, and Devin Sealskinner, Kylig of the Wooden Ear, I love Wood Ear Mushrooms, Mama White Mast and the Great Walrus. John pauses on the Great Walrus. He's like, excuse me? And Tormund's like, yes. <laughs> Nothing else to say, just <laughs> yes. Well, he doesn't say like, yes, but he's like, yeah, that's his name. Some of the children were ones that hit closer to home for John. Like, he finds that three of the hostages were Alf and Crow Killer's sons. They're all half-brothers, so at least we can acknowledge they're half-brothers. Um, <laughs> that Corin half-hand slayed. And another was a child of Vermeer's six skins. Yes, had the same runty, ratty little look about him. Unfortunate. <laughs> they come across two girls who try to sneak in as boys, but Tormund and John both catch them. Uh, and it's so funny. They're like, you leave us alone, Tormund giant stink. You let us go. 
John demands two boys in their stead, but Tormund says he'll take them. A hostage is a hostage, and a sword can hit girls just as easily as it can hit boys and lop their heads off. And he thinks, or he says, pardon me, Tormund says, a father loves his daughters too. Well, most fathers. Yeah. I left Tormund giant stinking just for you because I thought it was so funny. And I was like, this might be Eliana's favorite part if I don't leave it in. It's not nice. I have to leave it it's in. It's so It's very cute. It's super cute. You leave us alone. And I mean, yeah, he's right. Probably. Most fathers. I mean, these kids and these girls definitely have a stronger combat training because they have to live it. You know, I mean. Well, one of them does. Yeah. The other one, less interested in it, which is valid. Yeah. John asks... Uh, in response to Tormund's argument of, like, you should be willing to take these girls, John's like, so, you know how Mance sang a lot of songs? Did he ever sing you the song of Brave Danny Flint? Tormund's like, hmm, it doesn't ring a bell. And he's like, okay, well, Danny Flint dressed up like a boy to take the black. And then he's like, it's a sad song because what happened to her is bad. And he's just, he doesn't even, like, explain it really. He's just like, it's a sad song. Yeah, he lets that do its talking, and we all know how awful and sad it is. It's straight up horror. Just awful. Um, I thought it was interesting. He's like, do you remember that one song Mance sang all the time? It was sad. Like, Mance sang a lot of sad songs, dude. That's true. Like, a lot on his lute. I'm just saying. Yeah, just saying. like the Dornishman's Wife. Yeah. Uh, kind of sad, actually. Probably sang Jenny's songs a few times, you know? <sighs> sing it for us, Mance. Sing it for us. A dance in a dance with dragons. We get brave Danny Flint in the kind of first half of the book, in one of John's chapters. Then we get it again here. Uh, again, it's kind of that a uh, new world building. Here's a new song from George, and I don't think this one has as many complete like this song means this and it's exact to the book and this and this thing's gonna happen because they talked about it in brave Danny Flint. But it does serve as a really really well layered blanket song for a dance with dragons especially with the female role happening kind of in feast and in a dance with dragons especially in the north northern women and what's happening glossing past people like Danella hornwood who have already met awful mm. fates because of people like ramsey a dance with dragons wraps up jane and aria within brave danny flint in jane and Arya taking other identities, and for Jane, the horror that came after taking that identity, it adds another layer in the song with Alice Karstark's arrival at the Wall. Her uncle is chasing after her maiden head and claim, much like the first verse of the song, and of course adds another layer of gruesome foreshadowing when you think about the Night Fort and Shireen heading toward the Night Fort. Doesn't sound so good, does it? No, it sounds bad. Things sound bad. And if you start... And even Egret. Yeah, especially. Not, not in disguise, but she goes to the wall and... Yep, dead. Yeah. Uh, you could even add some creepy little finger Sansa vibes into this if you wanted to, you know? Mm. Sansa, her identity, little finger using her. God. It's just, it's a sad... Sad little song. I think you're totally right about Brave Danny Flint. I didn't realize it was only introduced in dance. Yeah, I was thinking about it, and I thought maybe it was introduced in, like, Storm or something, especially with all of the yeah, all the talk of the Night Ford and with Arya in Harrenhal before that. And I don't know. I thought it was something much more recent. Or, I mean, early. 
Yeah, I thought so too. So I, I guess that speaks to like how important it feels for this book, that it feels like it's been there for a while and speaks to George's world building, but also, you know, what you're saying about Jane and Arya, it is played at at Winterfell. Um, I, mm-hmm. I want to say during the same feast that Theon and Jane take advantage of to escape, but Wyman Manderly, I think, requests the song. He does. And has it played there so i it, it does some have speculated that it's an intentional kind of um jab yeah at jane but Ugh. that's absolutely something that's there in the background of the whole book yeah john's like i'm glad that you see what i'm trying to say torment i will send the girls to on Mo- and torment's like okay um i'll find two more boys the final hostage to walk through the gates is Charmin's son, Drine. He's close to Bran's age, and he has a wide red face, short legs, thick arms, and dark brown hair. He's like a little miniature Tormund, uh, who, again, just as a reminder, is shorter than we all thought. <laughs> He's shorter than John, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? And John thinks about Bran and Arya again, and Rob, who is part of the stage-setting dream, I think, like about the at, around the beginning of this chapter. And I think part of it is like, yeah, John's dream, but also like as you were saying about all these girls in disguise, Jane as Arya is like part of that overarching thing going on in the book. But also these two girls who come to the Night's Watch and how they're presented. One's like more meek, and the other mm-hmm. one comes in kicking and biting. For me, these two girls feel reminiscent of Sansa and Arya. Oh yeah. Especially that like latter one, like coming kicking and screaming. Like John doesn't think it a lot, but there's no way he's not like interesting in this moment. Cause like his family's opening up this chapter, right? Like end this day for him. And then like it closes with him daydreaming and then dovetails in the next chapter for Arya being such a big driving force for like why John makes the decision that he does and then dies. Yeah. And I mean, it's going to be such a good, such a good moment to read, but you know, in between all those words from Ramsey, he's thinking of Sansa brushing out lady's coat and her singing. He's thinking of Arya with her skinny little self and her skinny little sword. Um, very much so the girls are the resounding beat here. They are yeah. what is keeping him going is those girls. And in a way, they framed all of Catelyn and Rob's chapters, too, when we were back in Clash and Storm, right? It was all about them. And for Catelyn, it was getting them back. For Rob, it was winning the war so that in his mind, he had a chance of getting them back. Um, it's a bummer, dude. Yeah. Someone get these girls Absolutely. back. For sure. Oh, Eventually. Eventually. They'll find their way home. That's what they're all going... That's what they're all trying to do right now. So, John, uh, especially after Tormund has kind of mentioned to him what's happened in his life recently, I'm sure, but John already had plans to make Dryn his page, his personal page, and it's really cute because Tormund is like, now you stay humble, Dryn, and then he turns to John and he's like, he's a good lad, but you'll need to beat him here and there, but watch out, he's a biter. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, at least his teeth aren't filed right oh my god gross and he's not gaunt uh Tormund blows the horn to invite all of the fighters through next all of his volunteer soldiers step forward warriors with shields and leathers and furs and armor 500 with spearwives among them stir 
John can't help but think of Egret because he sees the spearwives. Their hair is kind of coming out of their helms and out of their masks and out of their hoods. And he just thinks of her fiery hair and her face in the cave, her voice. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Tormund and John turn their discussion over to trust. John asks why Tormund didn't send the woman first, and Tormund says that he's looking out for his people. If John wants fighters, he wants John to make sure the gate stays open to them. He says the free folk trust the crows just as much as the crows trust them, and that each is worth six of the night's watchmen. John has to smile at that and at the free folk's pride. Well, I think what's so funny about that is it's a reverse. And first of all, it's six of the night's watchmen when... I believe the saying at the watch, right, is a man on the wall is worth five or like, I don't know if it's five or if it's 20. I can't um, remember. Free folk. Yeah. Something like that. So they have their saying that's kind of the reverse of the night's watches. So I think that's part of why John smiles. Of course. And because it's, I mean, he fought with them. He knows them. And uh, you have to smile at their spirit. It is wonderful to have spirit, right? Yeah. Someone's gotta have spirit in this time. Yeah, John says, as long as the fighting is safe for the common foe, he's content. And Tormund's like, dude, I gave you my word, bro. It's iron. My word is iron. As the warriors file in, many are the hostages' fathers. Some of them look at him like they want to end his puny, tiny, five-foot-eight Kit Harrington life. Others <laughs> smile like they're long-lost kin, though some of those smiles creep John out more than the murderous ones. None of them kneel, but he gets oaths from many. Some, like black-haired Brog, Soren Shieldbreaker, red-bearded Garrick. Garrick offers three of his daughters of his noble blood to marry off for John. <laughs> he claims to be Raymond's kin, as Tormund had told us. Blood meant little and less among the free folk John knew. Egret had taught him that. Garrick's daughters shared her same flame-red hair, though hers had been a tangle of curls, and theirs hung long and straight, kissed by fire. Three princesses, each lovelier than the last, he told their father. I will see that they're presented to the queen. Selyse Baratheon would take to these three better than she had to Val, he suspected. They were younger and considerably more cowed. Yeah, the bar is low. For that, right? Yeah. I mean, I was finding, I, I guess maybe this is, is this strange for free folk women? So, yes. And I want to jump into that. John uh, is thinking to himself after this, and he thinks like, yeah, these girls are pretty young girls, but their father's a fool. And I just love the way that's framed, because critical thinking, for a hot second here, why does John think this guy's a fool? This guy is doing absolutely everything that the system says will give you success, right? To the free folk, he's making really smart political moves. This is interesting because free folk don't do political things like this, mm. right? This is a very weird display. It's something we aren't used to in our time with the free folk, with Egret, with Tormund, with Mance. This guy is kind of getting ahead, you could say. But John thinks it's stupid. Because John doesn't believe in that system. He can't understand why or how this man would sell off his family members for glory, for a better position, his daughters. Uh, just like you said, everything is about Sansa and Arya in his head right now, especially Arya. He thinks Arya's with Ramsay. He can't understand how anyone could sell their family members off, much like Ned probably couldn't understand 
uh, how Liana being sold off to a marriage she didn't want would be, right? Most of these men that John sees glaring at him, he sympathizes with, and some he even empathizes with after fighting with them. But for this guy to just, like, be bootlicking this entire feudal society so fast, the society that's cast them out violently and stuck them behind a wall, forced them to give up their entire culture and life for a plate of food and maybe a chance at eventual safety that they're probably gonna die during, like... Yo, Westeros is straight up just pushing out the industrial military complex. How you dealing, yeah. free folk? Uh, John sees the Game of Thrones as a mouth, a factory that eats kids. It takes them in, eats them up, spits them out. He thinks about already what Stannis would do if Stannis had Arya, who he'd marry her to. He thinks about what's happening to Sansa. Bran and Rickon are dead in his mind. I mean... He can't get behind any of this. He doesn't believe in what he's doing. He knows this is the only option that he has to save the free folk, but he doesn't believe in the means that he's using to get it done. He's doing this to save lives, and if he has to put that behind a political message, so be it. It's just like, it's the opposite of what the free folk are and what they stand for, and for this guy to stand there and just try to sell his kids off. Like the last of the giants is playing in our ears right now. John made this choice to try to save them. The better of the choices on the table. And unfortunately it's going to annihilate their culture and society as they know it. It changes after this. And this guy is just out here showing exactly the kind of person he is. Yeah, he is. And I think I kind of wonder a few things like it's on one hand, he kind of reminds me of Mace Tyrell and the way that he goes about offering his daughters um, opportunistic opportunistic. There's a part of me that wonders, like, maybe he doesn't know exactly how everything goes. Like they've heard. So he probably doesn't think that the Night's Watchmen are going to eat his children right apparently there's a rumor Tormund says that people believe that the rangers will eat their children which is also funny because as we know from some of Bran's earlier chapters in a game of thrones that's the same stories children are told about wildlings that they eat children etc but I, I kind of wonder like does this father think to some extent that he's giving his daughters a better life I think so. By doing that? Um, because, like, Torment, or is he, like, a response to some fathers don't? Torment saying that most fathers love their daughters, right? Yes. I think it also comes down to the fact that he boasts having royal blood, and he's boasting it mm. loudly to anyone that will hear. And, I mean, look at how they consider Val, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I definitely think you're onto something there that, yes, he obviously wants to give his daughters a better life and give them security, but at the same time, he's quite obviously doing this not just for them yeah i don't know i think immigrating into a new country a new terrain where maybe not everybody will come out alive you don't know what's going to happen i just would want my family to be together maybe that's just me but when there's ice zombies on the move and we've already had like tons of our outriders murdered by the others and like our supplies and people are dwindling. I just, I guess I understand where people would want to break away and go form a new life, but I don't know. I would just want to keep my family all together at this point before I start making political moves and trying to marry off to whoever will marry my daughters. But unlike this guy, the remaining warriors bring gifts to John that are not people. (laughs) That's good. He's got Devin Seal Skinner. He brings a sealskin hat. Cute. Very crafty. 
Carl the Huntsman, whom we mentioned before, brings a bear claw necklace, so bring a bear claw pastry next time. Warrior witch Morna removes her weirwood mask, which is interesting, and kisses his hand, saying that they'll be his man or woman, whichever he prefers. Also interesting. I just thought that was such an interesting... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, George. I don't know what you're going for, but I do love that she had a weirwood mask. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Northern Quaith. The passing free folk then toss their treasures into the steward's carts at the gate. They've got pendants, gold torques, jeweled daggers, silver brooches, gemstones, bracelets, goblets, and war horns. There was a word that stuck out to me, and I just want to talk about it. Like, that there was a yellow goblet. Maybe I'm pronouncing this wrong. So yellow is like a mixture that makes like this black substance, right? Mixes a couple of different uh, metals. And like what you do apparently is like you engrave something in, I don't know, like some sort of metal. It's typically silver. And then you push the yellow black mixture into it. So it comes out as sort of like black outlines or whatever. Then you wipe it off and then it's polished to be sort of like this flat black outline and thing. Yeah, learned that today. Oh, um, fancy, George. Thanks. Yeah. It's a fancy thing. That's why the guy's got to give it up. That's it. Hand it over. Hey, Just like this broken sword with three sapphires in the hill. Sapphires? Sapphires. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> I, I Honestly, like as soon as I thought it, I had to say it to you because I was like, she's not expecting this. I wasn't. You caught me off guard. <laughs> Bamboozled again. So tickled. <sighs> Which, interesting. Three sapphires in the hilt because, and this has been theorized before to death, but it kind of brings me back to a certain sword with three sapphires in the hilt. You might remember it from a little book called A Game of Thrones, the very first chapter of A Game of Thrones, the prologue. He tied the destrier securely to a low-hanging limb while away from the other horses and drew his longsword from its sheath. Jewels glittered in its hilt and the moonlight ran down its shining steel. When the steel, fuck, when the blades touched, the steel shattered. What? Sounds a little bit like uh, Waymar Royce's sword. And I think there's even a little uh, nod to him later on in the chapter we'll talk about too. But I do think it's at least an Easter egg. It, It does feel like an Easter egg. Maybe significant, maybe not. George doesn't know what cousins or half-brothers are. Um, Yeah, everything's been ruined. Like, now that I know that George doesn't understand how relatives work. I mean, to be fair, neither do we. We we had to puzzle it up. We're like, this is definitely not on us, right? As only children. This is, like, objectively like this, right? Just because we don't understand how families work. Yeah. After the pearls and silver scales and the toy mammoths, which is made out of mammoth hair. I want to point that out. It sounds great. I want one. No, you do not. Why not? It sounds so cool. I also like that this is like the weird category. He was like, so yeah, then all the weird shit came. (laughs) They're great. But someone treasured them. They gave that as their treasure. Like the mammoths and a helm made from unicorn head, an ivory phallus, a bunch of other things that are just odd and maybe allegedly not worth much. I love that there's just like, hey, here's an ivory tusk that's shaped like a dick. It's my family's riches. No, it's a treasure because that's a dildo, all right? That's important to that person. And I feel that. I get that. <laughs> they don't Good even have batteries, you, though. The batteries, the hand. Useless. Fucking useless. <laughs> it's not a vibrator. It's a dildo. Useless. You can have it in his boat. 
<laughs> it's. <laughs> I can't tell if I want to make the pun of the fucking useless or not, but. No, go on. Okay, I will go on because I want to say that this chapter actually is a confirmation of the existence of unicorns in this world. Like, obviously, we assumed because it's a fantasy story. When we are told that there are unicorns, there are probably actually fucking unicorns. But, you know, we were kind of told it isn't like it's in that faraway weird place that we don't really get. Skagos, allegedly, there are unicorns. And then we, like, kind of see it through a dream. But is it a dream or not? But here, all right, we have this helm. Made from a unicorn head. Shit's real. I it, it definitely makes me wonder if there was a Brax at the wall. And I feel like there might have been. I can't really remember. So maybe I'm just making it up. I just can't remember. But it makes me wonder if there's a unicorn helm. I can't believe their name's fucking Hornvale. <laughs> <sighs> uh, yeah. Up next come a wave of men from the frozen shore. The horned foot men. With their big bone chariots drawn by fearsome huge dogs and give them to me <laughs> no you can't have them eliana i'm sorry we can't we can't afford a dog it's right Balto. now the women are in seal skins some with infants at the breast and other women other children shuffle beside these women all with hard dark eyes the men are broken apart into two groups antlers and tusks and they do not like the other group they come snapping up the ice you know the reindeer bring up the rear behind them they've got reindeer Tormund warns John of the Frozen Shore gang. He's like, the women are worse than the men, and the men are bad enough with all their snapping back and forth. He offers John his skin of super strong mead, and John's like, yep, gonna need a big swig of that. So John takes a swig, lets it burn his nostrils. He tells Tormund he's a good man for a wildling, and they have a laugh, ha 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 ha. At midday, an ox cart gets stuck in the tunnel entrance. The free folk are starting to get angry with each other about it. Uh, and John and Tormund and Torag go down, they take care of business, they make it happen, but it does take about an hour. Tormund jokes, if he had Jormund's horn, he'd have made this tunnel problem easier for all of them. <laughs> but John counters that Melisandre burnt it when she burned Mance. Ah, two lies is what just happened. There were two whole lies. So Tormund counters that Mance actually lied. It wasn't the real Horn of Joramin. He just wanted you guys to think it was so we could have a little power as a treat. <laughs> uh, up, up, Sir Knight. <laughs> and then John thinks... If Mance's horn was just a feint, where is the true horn? It's the ivory dildo. The day begins to turn gray and windy, and Tormund announces it's gonna snow. They begin to move faster, and tempers start to get bad. There are just a couple of casual stabbings, nothing crazy. Uh, John <laughs> has <laughs> casual. John has Tormund tell him what he knows of the others, but Tormund's like, "We could talk about it when we're on your side of the wall." And then he proceeds to actually tell them everything about the others in an exposition passage, no matter what, even though he said he wasn't going to. So they killed off the free folks outriders bit by bit. They ringed their camps with fire, but snow and sleet would sometimes make it impossible. And he tells John that white mists would rise in the night to kill. He asks if John can fight that cold with just his sword. Hmm. A lot of interesting things going on here. Very reminiscent of Mormont, Lord Commander Mormont's strategy, his Mormont's ring of fire. Mm hmm. 
But what what are your thoughts on the mist? I was, when I was reading, it's this, a white mist, like, not a gray mist. Right, but what does it mean? Um, I don't know. It's this like time I'm not saying that sarcastically. I'm like Chloe. Tell me what it means. <laughs> I, uh... I actually mean this question. I mean, I think it does denote supernaturalism. Any mist is basically supernatural, right? Like, if you have an eerie mist, it's likely supernatural. I don't think it's anything awe-inspiring, like, ooh, like how the gray mists denote Bran and Bloodraven, but I do think it's very much so saying of a supernatural mist. And we've all been on those foggy mornings, right? You leave the house, Mm. there's a fog in the air, it all feels eerie. Nothing happens because it's real life, not a video game. Um... But it is all very Silent Hill. I like. I feel just reading it. I'm waiting for the bang to go off. John says, "If the gods are good, then he won't have to know if he can try to fight the cold with a sword." And Torben's like, "Well, the gods are seldom good." <laughs> Ain't so that the truth? Someone's fucking saying it. Yeah. yeah. Torben points towards the skies and clouds and the oncoming cold. Then he points at the wall. He's like, "It's no longer weeping. We gotta hurry this shit up." Torben tells Torig the same to put some movement behind the people because the gate is closing at nightfall for obvious reasons. And then John realizes that, oh, the free folk are like actually really truly afraid of the cold ones and they want distance between the woods and themselves which like fair the snow then begins to fall dance with me john snow he thought you'll dance with me anon so first off i want to pull this out there you know people talk about unreliable narrators it's like not a big deal but john doesn't even remember the quote right and it happened like two fucking chapters ago <laughs> he was talking to Alice Karstark you know it was at the wedding granted he was probably a little bit drunk it was a wedding right he's drinking his natty lights apparently and Alice says to him you could dance with me you know it would only be courteous you dance with me anon and so so the tenses are kind of changed here right here it becomes imperative dance with me Jon Snow and then a sort of not really prophetic, but like future tense of you will dance with me and not as opposed to like you used to dance with me. But beyond that, speaking of swords with sapphires in its hilt, as Chloe discussed, the language here is absolutely a reflection of the iconic line from Waymire Royce's like single act of courage, though it was great. Great, great job where he says, dance with me then against the monsters of snow and ice, even though he knows he can't win. As John, you know, is also staring at... He's, he described the snow sort of as dancing as well. So, interesting. Oh, really good A dance with play. dragons, even. See, I told you George meant it. It has to be that sword. I say what so. What about cousins? Okay, I listen. That was a fluke. <laughs> Just because George doesn't know how families work. Uh, which... Yeah, anyway. What was once a field now of white snow is now black and slimy with mud and footsteps, the worst. And by the end of the afternoon, it's snowing heavily and wildlings have dwindled down to a stream. Torig has been burning the dead by the camp. Uh, yeah, Tormund is like, Torig knows what to do, like, really casually. And I'm just like, oh, probably because he had to bury his brother and burn him. 
Honestly, I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I like I didn't think about it till I read this and when he just said Toreg knows what to do, I'm like, "Oh, that poor poor nice boy." Yeah. Like Drin is getting the special hookup treatment right now, getting to be like Lord Commander's page and shit because like you can obviously see that look Tormund gives him, like, oh, like, Drin is my heir, he's my hope. Yeah, he's like, you're gonna have to beat him a bit, but he's like, also, that kid's gonna eat so good. It's yeah, it's really sad, like, that's his young one, and that's his hope that maybe mm-hmm. Drin can live a better life, you know, than what Toreg had to do, that Toreg, you know, had to learn to burn people to uh, yeah. keep his people safe, and hopefully that's yeah. not what they have to do now. We didn't hear Munda mentioned in this chapter, did we? No, he kept it uh, just between these two. Mm. Yeah, well... Secrets, secrets. Uh, Toreg brings Tormund's rearguard when he returns. One of the men brings a boar that's twice the size of Ghost with him. This is Borog that we met earlier very briefly. He's a skin changer, which John immediately detects. He's like, excuse me? Another? He's like, oh, it's like in, <laughs> in into the Spider Verse when the things happen. He's like, you Just can't like sit with me. us. Uh, and Ghost detects this too, snarling at the hairy, ugly boar. Which be nice, Ghost. Can't wait. He might not be ugly because I personally, we don't even really know anything about him. But I'm like, I love Borok and his boar. They're the great. Uh, we were introduced to them also in Vermeer's prologue a long time ago, but anyway, like there's a moment where Ghost and the boar don't really get along, and then Tormund's like boars and wolves, like as though this is a usual thing, and warns them to keep Ghost locked up. And I feel like this is another one of those specters of Ned Stark hanging over the chapter, because we do have again, if you will all remember, a boar, a very very significant boar, at the beginning of the entire story. And while he wasn't really a player in the Game of Thrones because he died, and that that was a big part, but also Robert died because of said boar. Yeah. And you know what? That boar fucked shit up for Ned. Wait, are you saying there's a boar and then a king dies? Oh. There's something in there. I don't know. Or something there, but I'm here to learn more about Borok and his boar friend. I hope he names him something that's not very boring. Oh. <laughs> Tormund recommends that John lock up Ghost and he'll be sure Borak does the same. Tormund decides that it's time to pass through the gate and see what's on the other side. John says, Go on, I'll see you at the feast. He means to be the last one in. So John means to wait for everyone to get through and he means to close up his gate since he has the wall. Bowen Marsh leaves, watching his stewards pull the last carts into the tunnel, and then John and his guards remain. Borok stops 10 yards away. His monster looks at him like they're going to have a standoff. John is like, you better move. I need to close the gate. And Borok gives him a very dark warning to close it very good and tight because they're coming, crow. 3,119 free folk ended up passing through the gate. Bowen later tells him, 60 hostages went to Eastwatch, the Shadow Tower once fed, Ed took six wagons of women to Long Barrow, and the rest remain at the watch but not for long. John tells Marsh that Tormund will take his own people to Oakenshield within the next days and that the rest will go where they are told to go. Marsh is like, yeah, sure, in a tone that obviously means fuck off. 
Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I'm still tickled by the boring pun. I was trying to be like reserved, but you found the perfect way to bring it in. <laughs> I'm still on it. I would like to point out regarding this number three thousand one hundred nineteen free folk, Marsh's estimations based on the fires from last chapter were in fact closer to accurate than the numbers that Tormund gave. It is closer to three thousand than to four thousand. But I mean, part of that, of course, is because, like as as Chloe said last time, a census is hard when it's a bunch of different tribes, and also the others keep killing everyone. So yeah, not just the others, but, dude. Like illness, and I mean, yeah. what wasn't there a line last chapter where it was like they found a bunch of dead kids? I mean, it's kind of depressing, dude. Yeah. Like there's sickness and cold everywhere, and people just keep dying. They're losing people as they go, which is why we're letting them through, Bowen. If in case you forgot, Bowen. I just feel like yeah. we should remind him. But but apparently he's got pretty good Nightfire guesstimation skills. Well, good, because he's got a lot of <laughs> asshole skills, too. Oh my god. The atmosphere changed within the walls of Castle Black. It was usually silent and creepy, but now there's more <laughs> light streaming in. Turns out John loves having parties and people around. Maybe John's secretly an extrovert. He's an extroverted introvert or whatever. He likes the strange voices and the free folk walking the icy paths only walked by the Black Brothers. And then he comes across men having a snowball fight. This is beautiful. Playing, John thought in astonishment. Grown men playing like children, throwing snowballs the way Bronn and Arya once did, and Rob and me before them. Donald Noy's old armory was still dark and silent. However, and John's rooms back off the cold forge darker still, but he had no sooner taken off his cloak than Daniel poked his head through the door to announce Clytus had brought a message. That little dream bubble just goes, bloop! And also, Aww. there's a lot of similar Danny stuff going on. Like, this reminds me of her, you know, like, she's seeing all the happiness in her kingdom and seeing, like, oh, good, like, Missandei's off doing stuff and being 11 and smart and my my ladies in waiting are all off being happy and trying to like you know flirt and make new fun things to do here my handmaids but then she returns lonely to her chamber to deal with work yeah they're totally gonna relate in more than one way sexually mostly oh i i meant relations yeah. as in literally related i like also so you were talking about George just making up random free folk for these chapters and like just quickly oh, yeah. growing seeds. I want to point out this person just because it's within the same paragraph. All right, so we only hear about this steward here in the Night's Watch, like this book after Donald Noy has died. I want to introduce everyone to Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> He's less popular than Donald. Prada and- knockoff. Yeah. Now that Donald's out of the picture, it is Daniel's time to shine. Oh my god, it's a secret twin. Secret twist. <sighs> Daniel I I don't know anything about him other than that his name is Daniel and now he's in this story. We just don't even know where he came from. Was he named after Donald Noy? I mean I would name him after Donald Noy. Does he go here? He doesn't even go here. <laughs> We only learned about him now. Okay. So Clytus enters John's office and he brings the dark wings and dark words of this chapter. It's news from Cotter Pike. At Hardhome, with six ships, wild seas, 
Blackbird lost with all hands. Two Lycini ships driven aground on Skane, Talon taking water. Very bad here. Wildlings eating their own dead. Dead things in the woods. Bravosi captains will only take women, children on their ships. Witch women call us slavers. Attempt to take Stormcrow defeated. Six crew dead. Many wildlings. Eight ravens left. Dead things in the water. Send help by land. Seas racked by storms. From Talon by hand of Maester Harmune. Cotter Pike had made his angry mark below. Clytus asks John if it's bad news, and John is like, Indeed, it is. <laughs> Night falls, he thought, and now my war begins. What a fucking end. This is why yeah. Hardhome in the show will not be as good as the glacial menace of what we get in the books. The silent yes. horror, the dread, the suspense. Uh, reading that letter alone and reading like him just be like, storm-wracked sea, like, send by land, help, help, send by land. Like, John just yeah. went through this long day, and this is the kind of day where, like, you would probably come home from work exhausted, like, can't even get yourself into a bath or a shower, like, just put yourself on the couch and stare off at the wall after this long-ass day of work that you just had. And yet here John is going, oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, this is John at the end of the episode of Keenan and Kelly going, oh, here it goes. Yeah, Cotter Pike straight up was just like, John, I'm gonna need you to bring some maple syrup and a wig and three <laughs> cotton balls. All right, bye. Hang up. Like, that's what yeah. he just got killed. He did. Uh, and like... For me, what sinks it in in this read, like, when I was rereading this just now, is the eight ravens left. I'm like, oh. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. It's over for these people at Hard Home, dude. It is Which is, I really like Cotter Pike, okay? Oh, yeah, me too. He's got that, like, gruff, like, uncle kind of thing about him. Like, Roderick the I Reader, respect- but, like, yeah. not as bookish, obviously. Definitely not bookish, but I respect the hell out of Cotter Pike. I like yeah. him a lot. This makes me sad. I also like the other dude. Dennis. I like I Dennis. I like Dennis. You just like the Malisters. You have a crush on uh, the Malisters. But I just like him and Cotter Pike and their relationship. And also, I don't know. Cotter okay, Pike tickles fair. me. That's fair. No, I, anyway. I just like the gruff, like, gruff old dude. Blah, blah, blah. But you're totally right. Like it, And part of what makes this so horrific is, in my opinion, that we're not going to get to see a lot of it in, on screen. It's just another one of those things that it's like. Yeah. And by on screen, I mean, like, in the books through, like, the POVs, it's like, you just hear the rumors and that builds sort of the anticipation and, as you said, the horror of it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like something from fucking Dead Space, which... Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean... When you're, like, running out of fucking ammo and you're, like, eight bullets left. Just knowing about things. it from here, like, to me, yes, it's great. We got a cool episode seeing what we didn't actually get to read. Or haven't gotten to read or won't get to read, whatever. Whatever you want to spin it, whether we get to read it or not. However it goes down in the Winds of Winter yeah. or doesn't go down. Um, it's better to me. This way to me is just better with this plot. Uh, I, yeah. I think that you lose the emotion. It's better than a pile of CGI, right? Like, we just spent this whole entire fucking chapter just, like, getting these people across the wall finally, like... Finally, we're getting some movement. John's going to get some people to safety, you know, like his stuff is really doing something here. But 
it feels, even though he got 3,119 wildlings across the wall, it does not feel like he's succeeding. Like, he gets that letter from Cotter Pike, and he realizes yeah. it's all foobar, it's all dog-fucked. And he's the one who sent them there to go get, like, more wildlings. And I think part of it is, yeah, like you said, they got a fun action episode, and you saw some of those stakes through, like, the combat, but here the stakes feel different, Mm -hmm. right? They feel different than real in that it's a lot of things going on of, are they going to make it in time? Yeah. John led them here. Here's where we are at now. We've already lost these things. What is the best, most strategic course? And you know what? John's going to die. So Then what? Then what? it's all really fucked. Yeah. Then, like, how how is it all going to run? Like, everything's going to fall awry. It's, like, all very interlinked. Who's going to step um, it up? And who's going to save the free folk now? Even, it, like, are they going to be like, well, because we're not trying to get the free folk, are they going to abandon then their brothers who are on a mission to get them? So What's tying them, you know? I mean, when all hell has broken yeah. loose, your lord commander's been murdered bleeding out on the ground um there's ice zombies on the move and you just let through 3119 free folk through the wall like what happens then it just feels more suspenseful yeah and and, like things are not as in john's hands like sure you don't get to see the aftermath of that battle and that is a creative choice you can make but i think that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness from a distance Mm -hmm. is part of what makes this work and it's from the proximity of being close right uh we just watched like yes uh, a lot of this is filler as we discussed a lot of this is filler stuff made up for these chapters so that he could get to john dying he already knew that was going to happen he just needed to figure out what the fuck happened in between i get that but yeah. a lot of that this filler isn't... did serve right like me and you had a full ass conversation about these yeah. daughters that were brought to be given up to you know marry off or whatever um, I mean, we just talked about, like, these bloodlines that were introduced in one chapter. So George has given us something to care about. So when these free folk who are now, like, at the mercy of the Night's Watch, and this is your last chance for salvation, pretty much, penal colony, stop number one, you know, like, this is it. This is all they have, and it's over. John's dead. Uh, the stakes are very high. We just spent the whole two last chapters giving a fuck about these people. <laughs> Yeah. And Cotter Pike. Yeah. Which I guess we did not spend two chapters giving a fuck about, but I give a fuck. I know you do, honey. You, Him and Dennis Malister. Yeah, and I mean all those other people as well. Mother Mole. I care about Mother Mole. She's interesting. I really worry about that lady. I do. I want to know what her deal is. Well, I don't think you're gonna. I think she's gonna die. But that's at least knowing a bit about her deal, you know? That's true. That's true. When your favorite character isn't dead... But maybe all of you want to know what our deal is, right? Maybe you want to follow us on social media. (sighs) This is my transition into our post-episode discussion, everyone, of follow us on social media. Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. But, or maybe you want to let us know what your deal is. Instead, you can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. You can, and if you guys have not been getting updates or you just want to make sure you get the newest, latest, greatest updates from the girls that have gone canon, which is us, you can subscribe to us on many different podcast platforms. We are on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, 
Acast, and a bunch of other different places where our RSS feed is uploaded. Yes, and of course we are on Patreon. We have, as you all know, special episodes for patrons, $5 and up. Last episode was about the lantern slides from His Dark Materials, and the month before that was on House Valerian. We're going to come back to Song of Ice and Fire this month in January and discuss the Maiden Vault. Yes, the Maiden Vault. Last episode, we talked about some ideas for next month. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We've got a lot to accomplish next month with both His Dark Materials, The Subtle Knife starting up this month and next, a shorter month, and the Patreon episode for next month. But definitely check out patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And, of course, check out next week when we have the Lady Shelley on for John 13, the last chapter where John dies at the end. Until then, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. He does die at the end. He does die at the end. I mean, if you guys aren't ready for the emotional... Chronicle of a John foretold. What is this? Like, no, my son! It doesn't work as well as Dad No. It doesn't. Um... <sighs> Goodbye, you guys. Goodbye. <laughs>